Nothing has been more profound, more determinative, and more important, and and a better defining issue than race for American politics. It's the original sin. It's the worst thing that this country is known for anywhere else you go in the world. From the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution on down, it has been the criminal act of the Founding Fathers and everybody else. And, And you either believe that or you don't. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week, I've been thinking about the indignities of youth, those humiliations that we carry throughout our lives. I've got a lot of these. Most of them are just odd run-ins with adults where I said or did something that was just dumb. That dirty word I tried to ease into conversation with my dad, or that weirdly suggestive gift I gave my teacher, or that time I broke all of my best friend's grandparents' wedding crystal. I know I shouldn't feel bad about any of these things, that this is just the natural friction that comes with being clueless in the presence of teachers, parents, and friends' parents who know a bit more about the world than I did at the time. This is the kind of accidental education that's necessary, but also undeniably embarrassing. And I still feel it, that embarrassment. I can't help it. Then there are the things that go a little deeper. The traumas. I have a couple of these, too. I hold them a little closer to the vest, so I'm not going to share them, except to say that I think about them a lot, and talk about them enough. And any progress I've made in becoming a functioning adult has been because I've learned to take these things seriously, to see my life in some respect as a response to my earliest humiliations, or hopefully a more mindful response to that response. And lately, when I think about this kind of cause and effect, I end up thinking about the kids right now who are navigating a very weird time where the norms of education are being upended and the likelihood of trauma, in some form, has increased. I wonder what these kids will carry with them into the future, how the indignities of our current world will shape them, and how they, in turn, will shape the future world. This week, I'm speaking with director Michael Kirk about his latest subjects, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and how their earliest traumas have profoundly shaped them as leaders, and what that means for the future of our country. Then, later in the show, I'll bring Crosscut News and Politics editor Donna Blankenship on to talk about the latest Crosscut Elway poll where we asked voters their opinions on policing and protests. And I've got just one programming note here, and that is to remind you that I will be interviewing Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn on Wednesday, October 28th, just days before the election. We'll be talking about their latest book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. For more information and to RSVP, go to crosscut.com events. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Michael Kirk. Michael is a documentary filmmaker and one of the creators of PBS's flagship news documentary program, Frontline. 
His most recent contribution to the show is The Choice, Frontline's look at the presidential election, an examination of the race through the personal histories of the candidates, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is the fifth edition of The Choice that Michael has helmed and the second featuring Trump. The film begins very early in Trump's life, when his mother fell ill and disappeared for a time. It was the first in a litany of crises for the future president. Then we're introduced to Biden, who, as a young man, was suffering through another kind of crisis, a persistent stutter. These anecdotes serve as the establishing shots in two distinctly American stories that explore crisis after crisis in each candidate's life. The film is not particularly interested in the causes of the crises, though there is some of that here. Instead, it's focused on how the candidates responded. That they survived and persevered despite these challenges is pretty much the only thing the two men have in common. The film suggests that it is in the vast differences in their responses that the candidate's character is revealed. These are men who have spent a lifetime defining themselves in the public eye. Now they are being defined against one another. And in this respect, the American people are being presented with a clear choice. For the conclusion of the documentary, Michael hands the last word over to Dan Balls from the Washington Post. He says, Policy is not the choice that's on the ballot this year. It is a choice of character. It is a choice of temperament. It is a choice of persona and personality. That's always a factor in our presidential campaigns, but I don't think it's ever been as big a factor as it will be in November. Michael, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Great to be here, Mark. Thank you. So you've got to start somewhere with these, right? For this one, you start with Trump's mother and you start with Biden's stutter. And these are kind of personal tragedies. You call them crises, but they are kind of humiliations, right? I just think about what it must have been like to be them as children. And this is a film that is filled with humiliation. <laughs> How did you arrive at that as a kind of centering mechanism for, for telling these stories there? Yeah, of all the choices, uh, this is, the, as you say, the, the fifth one we've made. And, and one thing is constant. It is that these are about the lives of the two candidates, and they are woven together. So you spend seven minutes with one and seven minutes with another. And if they're roughly the same age, you're in the chronology of America at the time, too, because these two men are in their 70s, because they are well known for lots of other things. And because the networks and CNN and MSNBC and Fox tell you all the things about policy and all the truths and the lies about policy, well, we skip right. all of that and we go straight to the heart of, uh, of who they are. Now, because this particular choice is made at a time of tremendous crisis in America, the pandemic, the George Floyd and racial reckoning, um, you know, the, uh, the financial crisis, you name it. And we thought, well, let's measure the two men against uh, the crisis, because I've become a big believer in the idea of life method, that all of the famous politicians and infamous politicians I've known in my very long career have had a kind of method that they've gathered across their life based on things that have happened to them. And, uh, and that method, if you can identify it and measure it, you could call it a playbook if you want, they put, uh, measure that against how they react to various moments in their histories is a way to know either how they accumulated it, where it comes from, how they'll act, 
it isn't by intention, but it is by, uh, uh, but it is reality emerging constantly in these scenes that it's about humiliation. Uh, and each of them, how they deal with their own humiliation. I wish I would have thought of it when I first started to write the script, but the fact is it, it emerges uh, uh, handily without us having to cue you as the as the viewer in on it. You know, there are a couple, This so this is the the larger theme, and then there are a couple of smaller themes that pop up. And one of the ones that, that in the early chapters is pretty pronounced is the dynamic of bully and victim. You do a fine job of sort of quickly uh, showing really how um, each of these candidates has sort of come to, at least at some part in their life, fit, fulfill these two roles. And it's, I, I couldn't help but think about, and maybe it's because of the, you know, the, the era that they grew up in, but I always thought of, you know, Biff Tannen and Marty McFly, which, you know, they, they, they really are these archetypes of an era. But do you think that this dynamic is helpful in thinking about the race right now? And if so, how? The fundamental question, which is why does Donald Trump act this way? And uh, leaving aside the question of whether it works or not, uh, and uh, why does uh, why does Joe Biden act the way he acts, and what does he promise to be able to deliver at the end of the road? Uh, Trump, I think, I think, uh, learning to bully at a very early age and for six years at military school, uh, rising to the top, uh, especially coming from the father uh, that he had a winners losers zero sum game kind of a dad. We call it bullying in the film. It was called bullying in those days. And in a lot of ways, it's what he does. He's done to the press. It's what he does to people who work for him. And I think it's something that appeals to people in America because they sent him there to break Washington. Uh, he really, the way he views uh, the elect, his election was that people wanted him to go be the uh, wrecking ball in Washington and that he has delivered on that. And the only way he could do that is bully. And that comes very much right. from his father. Joe's was, uh, is the, is the starting point, the patient zero moment uh, from the stuttering of utter humiliation at the hands of authority figures around him, the nuns, other uh, adults, uh, children, uh, who in the 1950s were much more merciless than I think children are now. And I think once he beat the stutter, it illustrates the point about Joe Biden that everybody who knows him knows, which is he talks too much. He won't shut up. Uh, so here's a guy who was a stutterer who now has uh, grown into a, an adult man and for 47 years was a United States senator who talked too much, who was very determined to be close to other people, have friends, because it was a very hard road for him. You know, one of the things that the documentary does a, a pretty impressive job of is showing how much uh, race relations and tensions have shaped Joe Biden, which is something that I... I didn't understand the depth of that relationship. Um, and some of this is by design from Biden, and some of it is by bad luck, it seems. Um, why do you think Biden continues to be pulled into these issues of race? So he's a white guy. Civil rights movement is happening. He's finished law school. He's not a good student. Barely got through the University of Delaware. Not a particularly good lawyer doesn't get all hot, hot up about uh, the Vietnam War protests. 
I mean, he's kind of wearing alpaca sweaters and listening to Frank Sinatra records. You know, it's not Dylan and uh, and uh, the protest music. But but when he was a young man at nineteen, he was a lifeguard at an inner city pool, and and the gangs kind of ran sections of the pool. The shallow end was one gang, and the deep end and the high dive they were all run by separate gangs, and they kind of controlled who got to swim there. And Joe was a white one of two white lifeguards there. What it, what some of the gang members that we talked to. Uh, who are still alive, admired about him was that he didn't shrink from hanging out with them, getting to know them, challenging them, telling them they couldn't, they couldn't roughhouse, they couldn't do this, they couldn't do that. And in the process, he befriended at least one gang leader, a guy named Mouse, who he is still very close with. Uh, and he helped Mouse cure his own stutter. And Mouse, in return, introduced him around the community, the black community. This is back in the, in the 60s. And he just, he, he kept the, I mean, this is Biden. He kept the retail politics side of it going, but he never promised anybody anything. He just got to know everybody. And he, he could go in their houses, he could sit with them and talk to them, and, and Mouse showed him the ropes. And for some reason, uh, the black community stuck with him, and he defeated uh, his opponent in his first race for the Senate uh, by less than 3,000 votes. And they everybody attributes that to the black vote. So he was, he was known as a guy who, uh, you know, Black voters could could come to in the same way that they could come to Bill Clinton and they could come to some of these guys who were in these sort of marginal southern states where there were lots of black people and they just knew how to hang with them, I guess. And I didn't I couldn't find anybody who really who really had uh, an axe to grind with Joe about that. And it just became part of of uh, of the Joe Biden political uh, identity. Uh, we talked to one uh, one person in, in Delaware the former mayor of uh, Wilmington, who said he, when Joe was vice president, he went to the Christmas party at the at the uh, vice president's house at the Naval uh, Observatory, and there were more black people in the room than white people. Uh, yeah. And it was just the way, it's the way Biden rolls, I gather. Uh, even though he did the, uh, the crime bill, which put an awful lot of black young men in prison, uh, even though he mishandled uh, the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas stuff from a lot of black people's perspective. And even though he said this uh, funky thing about uh, about Obama, Obama, who himself had a lot of trouble navigating the black world, didn't want to be president of black America. All kinds of things happening, never would step in. Uh, Ferguson, you know, you name it. Obama didn't want anything to do with it. He felt like he was president of the United States and he was not going to get anywhere with the already angry, angry white base that eventually becomes Trump's base, the Tea Parties and others. Right. Uh, if he if he got too mixed into that, so Joe he sent Joe everywhere, and Joe was the ambassador to the black community uh, because he could be and he wanted to be. So this is another one of the undercurrents in this in this work is race. Uh, I think we see both candidates uh, uh, tangle with race, and it's really interesting to have two baby boomers tangling with race in different ways. In a way, it feels like kind of the culmination of a generational struggle. I don't think you see this same dynamic if Pete Buttigieg is facing off against Trump or, or even Kamala Harris, right? What does it mean that this generation is still fighting over race? And is it inevitable that it would come to this? All of us were deeply affected or not in a good or a positive or a bad or a very negative way by the civil rights movement, and by many of the things that have happened along the road. If you're Mitch McConnell, 
you have a diff slightly different perspective, but it's not necessarily a positive one. Uh, if you uh, were anywhere in the South as an elected federal official, you had a stance on issues like this, even when it was obvious how horrible that position was, but it was one you took. Uh, and you kind of got away with it for a long time. So people have been defining themselves. People that age have been defining themselves based on that and based on the struggles that they witnessed themselves and the stands they probably took when they were in college and other places. The same is true about military incursion and other things like that. But nothing, nothing has been more profound, more determinative, and more important and, and a better defining issue uh, than race for uh, American politics. It's the original sin. It's the worst thing that this country is known for anywhere else you go in the world. From the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution on down, it has been the criminal act of the Founding Fathers and everybody else. And, and you either believe that or you don't. And you either, it's either a practical part of your life and your politics and where you work and where you, who you hire and who you live with and who you encourage or not for uh, certainly the lifetimes of Biden and Trump. And they each have positions that are not always flattering uh, in this realm. So it's a good way to measure both of them. Trump and, uh, and his positions on it are, you know, are not even uh, thinly veiled anymore. It's pretty out front. And Biden is the opposite. And, uh, acknowledging all the way along, they're both white guys of a certain age. They have built in predispositions and other things they've either confronted or, uh, or adopted. And uh, anybody, anybody that age who's lived in America and seen what's happened in America, uh, they have to acknowledge what's inside them. Or go with the old flow because you don't want to lose the people who, you know, if you've got white supremacists who are in your base and they love you and they get you, get everybody heated up and, and to the polls or all the people in your base alive and well, well, you're going to go that way. Even if you don't agree with them or ever want to spend any time with them at all, you're going to encourage that because you're, you're, you're free. You're somehow you don't have the thing gnawing at you that says, this is wrong. Uh, I think Joe Biden has a thing inside him that says this is wrong and, you know, be careful. And the, mm -hmm. one, the, the one thing that the film reveals about Biden is he learns from his mistakes and tries to get better and better. When he does the terrible stuff with Anita Hill and, and Clarence Thomas, he recognizes that it puts, maybe for only this reason, but you, you, you want to hope and believe that it's for deeper and, and more conscience-driven uh, conscience driven reasons. But even if it's only practical reasons, he realizes as a Democratic Paul with future aspirations, he's really blown it with Anita Hill and, uh, and Clarence Thomas. And he, what does he do? He's, he sits on this committee that he's the chairman of that is all white men including one of the great racists of all time in government, to Strom Thurmond sitting on his right, who is yeah. a friend of his. Right. And Teddy Kennedy on the other side, a, a different kind of, you know, trouble character with the misogyny and other challenges in his life. So there's Biden, always the balancer, always the guy in the middle, always the guy who's trying to get along with everybody. He has to realize that he made a, a fundamental mistake in that committee and the Judiciary Committee. And he goes out and he, he pursues uh, uh, Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois, the first black woman elected to the United States Senate, and gets her on the committee. And in the process, grabs Dianne Feinstein as well and gets her on the committee uh, so that it's not all just white men or whatever. So the test is, did he react the right way to this mistake? 
even if he did it for all the wrong reasons, which is political reasons, there's still political reasons, and he still did something that probably matters in some way. Maybe his choice of uh, Kamala Harris was a was another nod to that, to this, I've got to have somebody who's keeping me honest all the time as a vice president who can walk into my office and say to me uh, the things she said to him in that first debate where she called him out on busing, uh, that she has the courage and the wherewithal to do that is something that that's what that was the symbolism anyway of that choice. Whether he, he means it, whether he'll react to it well, is um, is a, is a, is a measure of you know you watch him, you see his life, and you say how does he react in moments like this? You can't you can't acquit anybody from this generation. You know what was uh, what was the thing with clearing Lafayette Park? What was that about? Was that about race? Well, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a declaration of law and order, whatever that's code for, and uh, and 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 a lot of his base, a lot of Americans, uh, vote for him based on the strength of that, and he knows that. That's why he does that. You know, when I think about Joe Biden, I think about why does he make so many mistakes, and I think that it's it goes beyond race, but certainly he's made some errors in in judgment um, when it comes to race. Uh, some of them were. Um, where he was clearly wrong, others where, you know, maybe he was trying to do something good and it was misguided, say, the crime bill. But I th- when I think about the way that Joe Biden approaches his mistakes is that it's almost a model for what we're seeing in kind of critical race theory and how, you know, white people are asked to engage in this work that we need to do on race, which is that we need to we need to expect to make mistakes and we need to be okay with that. And in a way it's, you know, Biden is sort of this like proto <laughs> version of, of yeah. that where he, he in a way is a really ahead of his time in that he's willing to very publicly engage with the errors that he has made and to attempt to write them. And, and, and yet he continues to make mistakes over and over again. Do you view Biden's propensity to make mistakes as a liability after um, after doing all this work on his on his story? Yep. Yes, I do. The fact the fact that when we make our eight sections about his life, at least four of them are about him making mistakes and and developing a life method around them and saying, I apologize and whatever. It's kind of in a weird way, refreshing. And maybe all we really want from any president is uh, this is certainly what he's counting on is somebody will just calm the waters and say, all right, everybody go to bed. You don't have to worry about what the New York Times is going to say tomorrow morning that I've said that's outrageous. I'm not going to tweet nutty things. Go, you know, I'm not going to stoke the fires. My version of democracy. I did a huge, long interview with Steve Bannon, uh, almost three hours. And Bannon told me unapologetically they were when that they believe that the heart and soul of democracy is uh, fire and fury, is chaos, is butting heads all the time, attacking everybody. Well, that's completely the opposite of Joe Biden's perspective. Um, so he will make mistakes for sure. That's who he is. Uh, they, the two guys promise not only different ways of acting, but different courses. Uh, and, and that is based on their personalities and their life method and who they are. And Joe's life method is make a mistake, apologize for the mistake, uh, persevere, move on, do, yeah. do the next thing again, and try not to be as bad at it as you were yesterday. 
So, okay, I've got one final question for you. And here I want to come back to the president. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation um, and certainly the president and, um, and uh, his um, supporters are, you know, are, are, are kind of driving the speculation about what happens if Donald Trump loses the election. Um, you know, will he commit to a peaceful transfer of power? He has not been willing to commit to that. Given his biography and what you know about him, what do you think happens? Yeah, you, you know that he's going to say outrageous and fiery things as his first response because his deepest fear is, is being a loser. He doesn't want the headline to say of the Washington Post and the New York Times to say loser. Not Biden wins, but Trump loses, which is the, uh, which is the headline that he fears the most in the world. The second, the second response, I think, is a threat. But he knows how to do threats. He often threatens. I'll leave the table. I'm going to not negotiate. We're not going to do this. We're going to wait for a better deal. You know, we're going to cancel the stimulus talks with uh, Pelosi and Mnuchin. That's it. I'm I'm pulling out. It's all part of a negotiation. So some of this is negotiating with his own base. Vote for me. Turn out for me in big enough numbers that the even if I lose, it's going to be close. So yeah. if it's close, I can sit here and we can have we can have the fight. A lot of people who are around him are people from the twenty, uh, the, the two thousand uh, Gore Bush legal fight in Florida. The theory is that if he can get everything kind of steamed up and kind of in place, and if it's a close enough election, you know, then the third part of it kicks in, which is uh, especially if they've held the Senate, uh, Republican state legislatures can uh, go to work and nullify the electoral votes in states where it's really close based on flawed mail-in ballots, based on other anomalies that they create or, or don't. Uh, and right. federal judges are sitting there in place, a lot of them from the Federalist Society, a lot of them uh, Trump-appointed uh, federal judges. So the way that, the, that his mind works is, we've got this all wired up for the ultimate safety net for me, which is if it's kind of close, I can activate all of this and we can win in the Electoral College by nullifying their Electoral College votes and, uh, and the state legislature, the Republican state legislatures naming uh, their a new slate that votes for me. So he has a practical reason. That's all. It's all Trump. It's classic Trump stuff. Uh, the fact is that, uh, that uh, it can all be stopped and he knows it if there's a large turnout and the turnout is extremely pro-Biden. All right. That's Michael Kirk. We've been talking about his latest installment of The Choice. You can watch that documentary and more of his work at pbs.org. Michael, thank you so much for taking some time and coming on the show. My pleasure. Been great to be here. Hello, I'm Knut Berger, editor-at-large and resident historian at Crosscut. My job here is to cover the intersection of history and politics in the Pacific Northwest, and right now we're at a moment of historic convergence. Northwest history is full of social tumult, idealism, and exclusion. It's rich with experience and warnings. The recent protests for social justice have given me the chance to search our complicated heritage for something relevant to the moment. I found it in the statues and place names that speak to the region's long history of racism. History tells us something about our current pandemic as well. After the first case of COVID-19 was reported in Washington state, 
I looked back to the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. I started researching for lessons in that experience 100 years ago. Did people follow science back then? Did they refuse to wear masks? How did the epidemic change the Pacific Northwest? What was the aftermath? These are the stories I get to work on at CrossCut, trying to understand the present through the lens of history, trying to look ahead with lessons learned or unlearned. I couldn't do this work without CrossCut, and CrossCut can't do its job without your support. We count on our readers, listeners, and viewers to help us dig into our region to keep you informed and engaged in these historic times. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. And thank you for your consideration. Now, back to the show. I've got Donna Blankenship here now. Donna is the news and politics editor at CrossCut, and she and her team have been reporting on a new CrossCut Elway poll that asked registered voters in King County about their attitudes toward policing and protests and a little bit of politics, too. Donna, first, can you tell me what we were hoping to accomplish with this poll? Well, we were trying to do something that we weren't able to do in our previous polls, and that is to really find out what people in Seattle and also in King County were thinking about the protests and um, about Black Lives Matter in general and policing. And I think that we did get a pretty clear picture. So let's start with policing. What attitudes did we see toward policing here? And, and have they evolved I don't know that they've evolved. I think that we're just more clear now. It's possible they've evolved because there hasn't been good polling on this. But what we did find out is that most people in both Seattle and King County do not want to put the idea of policing away. They don't want to eliminate our police force. They don't even want to cut the funding in half, according to our poll. They're looking for is more of the same kind of reform we've been talking about for years You know, with polling, you don't go very deep, except for the people who we actually called. But it seems like they don't want to go as as far as the protest leaders say we should be going. And do they see a problem with the way that the police are conducting their business in the city and in their communities? I mean, do they see a racial element here that is that that's what is at, at question? They said a lot about that. Most people said that they consider the way policing is done now to be um, somewhat racist. Black people are more likely to experience police violence. Um, A lot of people also said that the police were using too much force in the protests, which I thought was interesting. But then again, some people said there wasn't enough force used and others said the situation was just fine. So that's a little iffy. Most people said um, that there was some kind of racism um, involved in police use of force against unarmed black people. But, you know, it wasn't a clear, clear majority except in Seattle. City leaders in Seattle have responded to the the protests and the what we've seen from police use of force uh, during those protests and they've taken some pretty they've taken some steps towards responding to to the protests we asked about what the voters think about the city leaders do they think that they're doing a good job on this 
voters were not happy about the city leaders. We only asked these questions of people who live in Seattle. Very few people said either the um, city council or the mayor are doing an excellent job. Some people thought they were doing an, a good job. The mayor got better scores than the city council, actually. But about a third of Seattle voters who we polled said the mayor and the city council are only doing a fair job. Another third said the mayor's doing a poor job or didn't have an opinion. And in, about 44% said that city council is doing a poor job. Let's look at the protests now. What do our voters think of Black Lives Matter? There was general support for the Black Lives Matter movement, both in Seattle and in the surrounding areas of King County. A heavy majority felt that they support the protests. So one of the interesting questions here, and one that really, I think, resonates on the national stage, is over the destruction that has occurred during or adjacent to these protests. We asked who the respondents felt were responsible for that destruction. And can you walk us through the the findings there? So um, when we asked voters, um, when violence occurred, who do you think is more to blame? 16% in Seattle and 12% in the surrounding areas in King County said the police were to blame for the violence. A a similar number said Black Lives Matter protests were responsible, but the clear, clear majority, 67% in Seattle and 74% in the surrounding areas said other people or groups aiming to cause trouble were to blame for the violence. One of the things that we were looking to do here is to see the differences between our urban and suburban voters. So the sample, in fact, was split evenly between Seattle and the rest of King County. And I know that you did some reporting on this difference or these differences. What did you find as far as how attitudes differ between people who live in the city and around the city? Well, I found that the attitudes were not that different. That in Mm. Seattle, they felt more strongly on most of these issues. But in general, the people who lived in the surrounding areas um, pretty much agreed with the Seattle voters. Um, The exception is when you look deeper into the numbers. And when you do that, you lose your margin of error. So it's not really credible. But in general, South King County is more conservative than East King County. People who live in these areas already know that, but it was clear from our our polling. I mean, the legislature has changed. Representation from the what we call the east side has gone way democratic in the last decade or so. And this is a big deal because those suburban voters are really what the national election hangs on. And also, you know, state election as well. Does this poll tell us anything about what we can expect to happen in November, do you think? Washington state goes clearly for the Democratic nominee. Um, and um, it also tells us that King County in general is not that different from Seattle. Um, I mean, I live in Bellevue. I know that my neighbors are largely families that um, might have started out their time in Seattle or somewhere else, and they were looking for good schools and moved to my neighborhood. So I know that one of the things that you love to do when we conduct these polls is we do callbacks. 
we ask the respondents if a reporter can call them and then we get a list of names and then you get to just call these people who otherwise we wouldn't know about and talk to them. So can you tell us who did you talk to for this poll and uh, what did you learn about your neighbors? Well, I talked to one conservative and one liberal and they both confirmed that their neighborhoods and their neighbors are much more liberal than probably most people in Seattle think they are. The conservative person said um, that they never um, share their political views with their neighbors. Um, they get along better by not doing that. I've been talking to a lot of voters lately because we're um, doing a an election newsletter that comes out every week. And in each issue, we have a voter of the week. And so I've been calling back people from our polls, which has been really hmm. fun. And the thing that you learn about other people that maybe you don't learn by just talking to your friends is that everyone's idea of what's happening in the world is nuanced and different. And there are um, liberals not voting for Biden and there's conservatives voting for Inslee and for all kinds of interesting reasons. So it's a real treat to get to talk to strangers. That's one of the benefits of being a journalist. All right. That's Donna Blankenship. We've been talking about the latest Crosscut Elway poll, which you can find at Crosscut.com. And you can sign up for that election newsletter at Crosscut.com slash newsletters. Donna, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about the poll. Thanks, Mark. It's always fun. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Donna and to Michael Kirk for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.